Our Father in heaven, we praise you as our king. Lord, you are the ruler of this universe and ruler over our lives as individuals and ruler and head over Snowden Baptist Church. And we give you appropriate praise, honor, glory this morning because you are worthy of praise. Lord, now as we open your holy word once more, we ask your help both for me as I preach and for each and every person who will hear today. Help us to hear well, and not only hear well, Lord, but be doers of this word as we leave this place later today. So we pray your help, Holy Spirit, working, wielding your word in your world as you do, and in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, from the initial verse of 1 Peter up to verse 10 of chapter 2, so in other words, in the whole section of 1 Peter that we've already journeyed through, the focus has mainly been on the church and the relationship of the church to God, the church and its inner life, the spiritual development of the church. Today, as we venture into what really is the body of the letter now, we'll notice that Peter's focus changes somewhat. Beginning at verse 11 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter is going now to begin addressing the relationship between church and world. How should we, the church, live in a world that is often hostile to Christ and hostile to his gospel? What posture should we take as the church within this world that would bring honor to God? These are the kinds of questions that Peter will now tackle. And so we begin today at chapter 2, verse 11. Peter starts here with terms, notice, terms of warm affection to the church. The NIV has Peter saying, dear friends, but really, friends, that's not strong enough with the original Greek in view. Better is the rendering, beloved. Peter addresses the church as beloved. And then he urges the church to a particular something or beseeches the church. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Now notice there that Peter reminds us of our status, doesn't he? As the church, our status. We are aliens and strangers in the world. Now I can prove to the authorities with the deed of purchase for our house in Pierrefonds that I am now a resident of Quebec. And our van now has a Quebec plate on it. For all intents and purposes, it sort of looks like we're from Quebec now. But of course, all of you know that we are not from Quebec. For example, I will always be, you need to know this, I will always be a dyed-in-the-wool oiler an Eskimo fan, <laughs> despite the fact that I now live in Habland. 
There are certain parts of Quebec culture that I will never embrace. <laughs> being from Alberta, uh, the Canadians and Alouettes being part of that non-embraced stuff. Peter reminds us in verse 11 that as the church, as Christians, we are aliens and strangers in the world. We, the people of the church, God's rebirthed community, are ultimately from another land, from another place. And therefore, we don't ever totally fit in to our surroundings. As Daniel Doriani says in his commentary on 1 Peter, quote, we will never fit perfectly in this age. We cannot laugh at some jokes, cannot enjoy some parties, cannot take some books seriously. We may never fully agree about what is funny, what constitutes a good topic of conversation, and what counts as a good argument. Close quote. Strangers and aliens in this world. Peter begins here in verse 11, reminding us of that status that we have as believers. And he does that to say, as, as aliens and strangers in this world, abstain. Abstain from sinful desires. Aliens and strangers are people that abstain from certain things. The Greek word translated abstain means to avoid contact with something or to avoid use of something. I'll give that to you again. Abstain means to avoid contact with something or to avoid use of something. Abstain. Being an alien or a stranger in this world carries with it the necessity of abstinence. Namely, in the text, we are to abstain from sinful desires. And folks, here we have, in this part of 1 Peter, here we have the negative side of what it means to be the holy nation that Peter has just talked about in 2.9. To be holy before God will mean negatively, that we have to abstain from sinful desires. Now, I want us to notice carefully a few things here. First of all, Peter is talking to the church when he says, abstain from sinful desires. In other words, Peter is aware as he writes that even those in the church, even those who have the Holy Spirit, we are not exempt from sinful desires bubbling up and causing trouble. Abstain, spirit and dwelt people. Abstain from sinful desires. That's the first thing that we need to see, that he's writing this to the church. Secondly, we need to see that this command here, and this is so important, this command here to abstain from sinful desires, listen, runs quite contrary to much that our culture would teach us. Many in the culture would say, oh, you have a certain desire? Run with it. 
Let's applaud your desire, whatever it might be. There are no wrong desires. Peter says here, not all desires in fallen people are noble or healthy or God-honoring. Some desires that well up in us, like the desire, just as an example, for brutal revenge. Some desires that we have are just plain sinful, according to the God who made us. Abstain from sinful desires. Say I have a desire, God forbid, to lie to the tax man. Say I have this great all-consuming desire to consciously hide income from the tax man. That is a sinful desire. And I can either nurture that desire with all sorts of justifications and excuses and arguments, or... I can obey 1 Peter 2.11 and restrain that desire in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it is better to suffer a heftier tax bill than sin against God. Abstain from sinful desires. And folks, Scripture is very helpful to us in discerning what exactly sinful desires are. Peter, in verse 1 of this same chapter, talked, didn't he, about ridding ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, sinful desires. And the Apostle Paul, over in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, lists for us sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Sinful desires. When we pause over such lists, we soon recognize that sinful desires that we are to abstain from involve the flesh, the mind, the will, and the heart. The whole of us. Peter says in verse 11 that these sinful desires war against. Whoa. These sinful desires, this is God speaking to us, war against our souls. Did you know, in fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you're in a war. Go ahead and do it. You're in a war. Sinful desires war against our souls. Peter is not playing here. When someone or something is engaged in warfare, it wants to win. 
Amen? It wants to conquer. It uses weapons to defeat its opponent and destroy its opponent if necessary. Sinful desires war against our souls. The question is, have we declared war on our sinful desires? Do we live with a wartime mentality? Well, it's awful quiet in here this morning. Do we live with a wartime mentality? Do do we want to seek and destroy and kill off our sinful desires as much as they want to ruin us? And folks, Scripture talks about killing sinful desires. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion is a slow death. The person who is crucified suffers a great deal before they expire. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Friends, this is a game of death. Either we will kill the flesh or it will try to kill us. Wartime. Now, one of the best descriptions of the tactics of our wartime opponent that I've yet found is the Puritan John Flavel. The Puritan John Flavel's book, The Method of Grace, is where I'm finding this, where Flavel describes the collusion or the wartime agreement between Satan and our sinful desires. Flavel wrote concerning the nature of temptation. Now, temptation, temptation to give in to our sinful desires is something we all know about very well. Flavel wrote, temptation is a siege. Note the warfare language. Temptation is a siege. Satan is the enemy outside the walls, laboring to force an entrance, natural corruptions are the traitors within that hold correspondence with the enemy outside and open the gate of the soul to receive him. Friends in Christ, we need to know, as God's new creation community, we need to know the strategy the tactics of our enemy who loves to see us give in to our sinful desires, whatever they might be. And knowing those tactics, we need to develop tactics of our own if we would abstain from the sinful desires which war against our souls. How will we win the war? Well, there's much that might be said here. The one greatest thing, I want you to listen carefully, the one greatest thing that we can understand is this. Believer, don't ever think that you can win the war against sinful desires in your own power. It will not happen. Yes, you are commanded to abstain from sinful desires here in 1 Peter, but know that the power is God's. It is not your limited, stumbling, 
weak power. As Flavel wrote in that same book, and I love this, he says, the duty is ours, but the power whereby we perform it is God's. The spirit, he said, listen, the spirit is the only successful combatant against the lusts that war in our members. I want to read read that to you again because I think it's so very crucial. The spirit is the only successful combatant against the lusts that war in our selves, in our members. Ephesians 6.10 How are we to be strong? Be strong, says the Apostle Paul. How? In the Lord and in the strength of whose might? His might. We throw ourselves in all our frail weakness, trembling in temptation. We throw ourselves at God and we depend on his power and strength to be overcomers. That is perhaps the best tactic, the most important tactic in our fighting back to crucify the sinful desires that war against our souls. But let's go on in our text. There's so much here. Verse 12, having talked about the negative side, about what it looks like to be holy in verse 11, so abstain from sinful desires, it's a negative side. Now Peter goes on to the positive side of the coin. To live as God's holy nation, it will mean that we live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now let's take this phrase by phrase here. First, Peter says, live good lives among the pagans. Peter assumes that the people of the church will be living among the pagans. That is, he assumes that we will live life, that we will do life in the sight of those who are not Christians. In other words, the church is not to separate itself off from the culture or flee from the culture, or become sort of insular and completely inward in its focus. No. The church is to live good lives among the pagans. That is, we must engage life amongst non-believers. And the quality of the life that we must live in the sight of unbelievers is a quality, listen, of beauty and of goodness. Live such good lives among the pagans, he says. That is, have a beautiful or attractive lifestyle that pagan unbelievers will take note of. Live virtuously. Live with compassion. Live with joy. Listen well to people. Listening is a lost art in our culture. Listen well to people and stop gossiping. And weep with those who weep. And show them that Christians can have actual fun. Amen? Amen. 
and go about serving people. And do this, says Peter, so that though they accuse you of doing wrong. Now, Peter is a realist, friends. He knows that the sort of default tendency of many unbelieving people is to slander Christians, to speak ill of Christians. He says, you live an exemplary, beautiful life before unbelievers so that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, Bible scholars, automatically we read this verse and we find, wow, this has a great resonance with Matthew 5.16, does it not? Where Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Peter, in our verse, look at the verse again with me. In our verse, he seems to be talking about unbelievers coming to Christ, converting to Christ. At least partly they are converting as a result of them beholding the good deeds of believers. The good deeds done, the beautiful life lived in front of the unbeliever can be a great seed planted in the unbeliever's life that God sprouts and God waters, ultimately leading to their conversion. And the new convert glorifies God. How? By believing. Glorifies God by believing and will glorify God on that great day when he visits us, when he comes back for us a second time. Friends in the church, your life before the unbelieving world matters. Amen? It matters. Our godly conduct before the world, says Peter, the apostle, can have a powerful, God-glorifying impact. Well, watch where he goes now in verses 13 and 14. You ready? Can you give us some examples, Peter, of what living good lives among the pagans actually looks like? He says, well, sure I can. Verses 13 and 14. Oh, Lord, have mercy. (laughs) Submit. I know that's a bad word in our culture. (laughs) Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. He's talking to the church. To every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now here with verses 13 and 14, I just want to make some general remarks. We notice here that clearly, clearly, Peter is talking about the Christian's relationship to the state. The Christian's relationship to human governments. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do Right, friends, human governments, like them or not, 
serve basic functions in society. Governments maintain a basic sense of order in society. Governments, as Peter says in verse 14, punish those who do wrong. That is, they punish the Clifford Olsons of the land by locking them up for life. And government, says Peter, commend those who do right. That is, they give the Order of Canada to a person like Abby Monroe of Montreal, who was a dedicated community worker. Governments perform basic functions in society, and they maintain a sense of order. Now, are governments sometimes broken? I would argue that they're always broken. At least, they have been for the 46 years of my life. Do governments have corrupt people in offices? Of course they do. Say amen, Quebecers. <laughs> do governments ever make bonehead decisions that cause great frustration for the average Joe? You bet. But human governments have been, listen, established by God temporarily for this season of world history and God commands us here in this part of his holy word to submit to them. And the word submit here means basically to arrange your lives under the authority, arrange your life under the authority that has been invested in the government of the land. And we do this, notice in verse 13, notice carefully, we do this not because of anything that's great or special about the human government, but we submit to governments for the Lord's sake. We submit to human government because this is what God asks of us. And we also remember that Jesus himself recognized, at least at some level, that the authority of human governments... When he commanded us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and when he acknowledged Pilate's authority over him in John 19. Now, of course, the question arises here. Okay, Dunbar, are there limits to our submitting to human governments? Yes, absolutely. Of course, there are. In fact, God's word records several examples of people who glorified God by disobeying human governments in certain situations. As Tom Schreiner has said, Tom Schreiner teaches at Southern, where I'm finishing up my degree, Tom Schreiner has said this, if governments prescribe what is evil or demand that believers refuse to worship God, then believers, as slaves of God, must refuse to obey. Are you with me? And so we have the story of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 who disobeyed the decree of Pharaoh to kill male children. And God, it says in the text, dealt well with those midwives for their civil disobedience. And we have the story of Daniel, who also engaged in civil disobedience in the matters of diet and prayer. 
And we have Peter himself and John in the New Testament book of Acts who defied the authorities when the authorities were trying to command what the apostles should preach and how they should preach it. There are times, however rare, when governments may try to coerce or force us into sinning against the Lord, in those rare circumstances, rare circumstances, it will be right to refuse to submit to government. But again, friends, I want you to know, for the vast majority of the time, we accept the human structures of government and we submit to them, as our text says. And bear in mind that Peter, Peter wrote verses 13 and 14 as a person who lived under the Roman emperor Nero. Now, if we think it's hard for us to submit to the corrupt governments we may live under, consider Peter's case under Emperor Nero. First of all, the Roman government in Peter's time was known for its rather cruel exploitation of the lower class in the area of taxes. The government was known also for its general tyranny over its citizens. But aside from all that, Emperor Nero himself was a real case. (laughs) Got to be careful what I say up here. (laughs) Nero had his own mother executed. Nero was also suspected in the poisoning to death of his stepbrother. Nero removed his wife in favor of his mistress. He also engaged in regular executions of those he simply didn't like. In July A.D. 64, there was a tremendous fire in Rome, a fire that some suspected Nero himself had started. Nero's response was to find scapegoats. Christians, in fact, some of whom Nero had wrapped in the hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. Other Christians he had fastened to crosses and burned in his own garden sanctuary as he dressed up as a charioteer. It was under Nero, in fact, that Peter would be executed. And yet, Peter can say, in verses 13 and 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, he's talking about Nero, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Daniel Doriani puts it well when he says this, if Peter could command the church to submit to Nero, We can certainly submit if our governor or premier, prime minister, mayor takes a stand that we consider erroneous. Human governments will always be broken at some level or some levels, but they maintain, for this brief season in God's history, they maintain certain functions, they prevent anarchy and disorder, I like the sentiment of Russell Moore, who is an American Christian, president of the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Moore says this. It's a great quote, I think. 
because we know that we will, as believers, eternally say, Jesus is Lord, we can, as citizens, temporally say, Hail to the Chief. And again, friends, remember the context of the passage here. Submitting to human governments is one practical way that we live good lives among the pagans. Well, let's travel forward to the remainder of today's passage quickly. Peter now returns to that idea of living good lives, doing good deeds in the world that he talked about in verse 12. In verse 15, he says, listen, for it is God's will, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. I think the ignorant talk of foolish men here in verse 15 is parallel with the accusation of wrongdoing in verse 12. And the way we silence as the church, the way we silence all this slanderous talk against Christians is by doing good. By being Jeremiah 29.7 people who seek the welfare of Montreal. We do good in the midst of this town, in the view of unbelievers. We organize groups to go and pick up trash in city parks. We volunteer, take groups of people to volunteer at homeless shelters. We engage in prison visitation. We take Christmas hampers into NDG, etc., etc. We can get creative on this. We add value to the community. We develop a God-glorifying, honorable reputation amongst our neighbors. And then the guy who was prone to disparage Christians suddenly shuts up and thinks, you know, I'm starting to see that my charges against Christians and against the church are really baseless charges. These people are doing good. How will we, the community of Snowden Baptist Church, apply verse 15 in our life together? Let's think together on that. Verse 16. Live as free men and women, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, Live as servants of God. Now, many of you know that I've been studying the book of Exodus for the past three years. Exodus is the book that I've been focused on for my thesis in the doctoral program. It's interesting in Exodus, God's message to Pharaoh is not, let my people go that they may then be free to do whatever their hearts desire. No. God's message to Pharaoh in Exodus is rather, and I'm quoting the text here, let my people go, free them, that they may serve me. The people were to be freed, not to go do whatever they wanted, but freed to serve Yahweh, to serve God. What is true freedom? True freedom is serving God. God instead of serving Pharaoh or serving Satan or serving sin. True freedom is the freedom to be a slave of God. True freedom liberates us to do the good that God commands and we flourish 
in that kind of a scenario, and God is glorified. Peter says, live as free people. We have to define freedom as we have. Live as free people, but your freedom, he says, has parameters about it. Notice this. Your freedom is not to be used as license to engage the sinful desires that Peter has already talked about. Your freedom is freedom to do the good that God commands, to love neighbor, to love the Lord your God and serve him. And in the context, if we're we're reading this in context, maybe that means to live free will take the form of submitting to government. Don't use your freedom in God as a pretext to be insubordinate to government. Well, it's quiet in here. Verse 17. Now, Peter gives us four examples as he wraps this up. Four examples of the exercise of our freedom. What does freedom in Christ look like? It looks like this. We will show proper respect to how many people? Everyone. Since, after all, every single person you will ever meet, from the uttermost to the guttermost, is made in the image of Almighty God, And thus they deserve your respect, even if they are unbelievers who slander you. Amen? Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Peter's talked about that already. Love the church. Don't live as an armchair critic of the church. Love the church. Fear God. That is, have a loving, affectionate, heart-pounding reverence for God. And finally, honor the king. Now notice well here, friends, that Peter does not say, fear Justin Trudeau. Right? He says, honor Justin Trudeau. The only one that commands fear here is God, not the ruler of any land, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Honor the king, but don't fear him. Because after all, neither Justin Trudeau nor Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton can create a world out of nothing. Only God can. Fear God. Honor the king. Well, friends, as we close this off, I wonder what the Spirit has been saying to you concerning the application of the things that we've meditated on. Maybe it was the apostles' command to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul, that maybe now the Spirit is nudging you on that. Maybe your war effort needs to be rekindled in the area of sexual temptation, perhaps, or a tendency to pride, or you name it. Maybe God has been dealing with you this morning on the topic of living a good life, a beautiful life, amongst unbelieving neighbors. For me, God's command here, he dealt with me on this this week, God's command here to submit to human government... (laughs) has really challenged me this week, because in past weeks, admittedly, I have been quite frustrated by the bureaucracy in Quebec 
when it comes to forms and payments and driving distances and wait times, etc. It has been a test of my sanctification. <laughs> I needed the reminder this week to be submissive, to take the posture of submission for the Lord's sake, even if I disagree with the government. Well, whatever the case, whatever it is that God has been speaking to you on, and I trust that he has in this section of his word, I want to avail myself to you right after this service. I'll stand up here, and if you need prayer, I want to ask you to come forward, and we can pray together. For now, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Father, you are gracious and faithful and good and mighty and powerful and loving. You are the God who transcends your creation, but yet have chosen to be intimate with us by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, we are such a thankful people. And I pray, Lord, as we've looked at this section of 1 Peter 2, that you would take, Holy Spirit, the text and apply it to each individual's life here in the community, that we would become the kind of people that you have commanded us to be, giving us the power that you command, Lord, to be these kinds of people. We pray your help this week in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Your benediction this morning comes from the tail end of the little book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Have a great week.